In the second year of Darius, the king in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of all hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Way to go, Lisa. All those names. She did a great job. When I got here this morning, I said, you're going to be sorry you volunteered to read scripture this morning. She did a great job. Uh, well, I am back. I am Ransom. I'm the pastor here, and I just want to say thanks to Steve uh, for holding down the gospel uh, here while I was gone. Uh, we had a lovely trip as a family, uh, but I have to say, uh, my family, I, we love being here. And so it is so, so good to be home uh, here sharing the Word of God with you this morning. And uh, as we see here, we're in Haggai. Uh, we have just three more sermons in this series uh, on the Minor Prophets. I've really been enjoying studying and delivering these uh, lessons. And so uh, while I'm sad that it's going away, I'm excited for what we have coming next. Uh, we get Steve finishing up a couple in his James series that he started the last couple weeks. If you haven't heard those, I would catch up with those online. And then we're going into 1 John in the fall. So a little uh, syllabus for you. Let me give you some background uh, as why we're in what's going on in here in Haggai this morning. Um, if you can recall the history of ancient Israel, maybe you don't even know the history, uh, God had brought Israel into the promised land that he promised Abraham. And he, God said, basically, you are my people, I am your God, here's how I want you to live. And in that agreement that he made with them, he said, if you do what I say, if you do as I call, have called you to do, you'll remain. But if you don't, I'll take you out. And so what's happened in Haggai is uh, the people are basically serial rebel, re rebels. For, for years and years and years, they've just never done really what God's asked them to do. And so God first removed the northern kingdom uh, by Assyria, and then he removed the southern kingdom, Judah, by Babylon. Now, the prophet Jeremiah made a, a, a prophecy and said, for 70 years, you'll be in Babylon, and then God will send you back. All that is very quick, but here we are. God has sent the people back. It's been about 70 years since they went to Babylon, and God sent the people of Israel back to the promised land, and they had one thing to do. They had one job, and that job was to rebuild the temple. You can read about this in Ezra 1 if you want to get some more in-depth background. Uh, but for whatever reasons, we'll talk about that in a moment, the, the rebuilding of the temple had actually stalled out before it ever began. It hasn't happened. And so what happens 
is God sends Haggai, the prophet, to, to call the people out in their disobedience. And so what Haggai is about, this short, excuse me, this short um, prophetic book, it's about obedience. God's calling Israel to obedience. The people of God, they returned like God said they would. He gave them something to do, and they are not doing it. Now, uh, the fun news. In turn, as this book is about Israel's obedience, this book, this sermon, this passage is actually also about our obedience. Yes, I can see it in your faces. Why, why did some of our hearts drop to the floor just now? Because we don't like to listen about obedience. In fact, I have several different things that I do. I get here early on Sunday mornings, and to get kind of my, my game face on, if you will, one of the things I do is I'll read um, New Morning Mercies by Paul David Tripp. And today's devotional was about obedience. And in that devotional, he lists all these reasons why we hate to hear about obedience. We hate to hear about it. Uh, and so... Um, listen, and, and some of you are probably thinking this. We've been learning about God's love all summer, Ransom. Why now are we going to God's obedience? Listen, this is not a sudden departure from God's love. And here's what Haggai has to teach us this morning about our obedience. Haggai wants to, for, for the Israelites to see, he wants us to see that God's love and our obedience go hand in hand. God's love and our obedience go hand in hand. In hand. Think about it this way. God is at work in the world. That's what God does. He's working. He's working in the world. He's working his plan. He's working his purposes. Obedience, as a simple definition, is joining him in that work. That's what obedience is. God's calling us to work with him in the world. And, and the reason it's connected to his love is because God is kind of a miraculous thing. He lovingly, miraculously invites us into his work. <laughs> he asks us to help him and be with him in his work. And so this morning, as we look at Haggai, my prayer is that we'll see this, that God's love and our obedience go hand in hand. Let me just say a quick prayer for us, and we'll jump into the text. Father, thanks for bringing my family home safely. Thank you for a place that we look forward to coming home to. Thank you for the opportunity this morning to share your word. Thank you for the opportunity this week to dive in and learn myself about who you are, about my disobedience, about my obedience, and about your love and how all those things work together. I pray, Lord, you'd be in our hearts, that you would open us up to what you have for us this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to start this morning with the drink of water, and then after that, let's look at the disobedience of the Israelites, because the disobedience of the Israelites in this book is much different than what we've seen in most of the other minor prophets. Take a look at verse 2 with me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So the sin of the people does not involve idols. It does not involve cults. There's no like major sexual sins going on. There's no major departure of these kinds of sins that we think, oh my goodness, that's really shocking. No, they have simply, they're not against building the house of God. They're simply saying, this is not the right time. This is not the right time. It's a subtle and actually kind of practical disobedience. 
What we find from the scriptures is that they had returned from Babylon, certainly, but they had had a lackluster harvest the year before. And so as they're approaching the time that harvest is over and they're talking about their their resources or what they have available to them to, to accomplish this building project, they look at their resources, they look at the project, and they make this very practical decision, it's not the time. This is not the time. We're not against building the house of God. We, we want a house of God, but we don't have the resources we need to do this and come out on the other end okay. And so in tough times, they made an evaluation. They chose the conservative path, and they chose to conserve themselves in this situation. And so this subtle and practical disobedience, I would say if you really boil it down, it comes from fear. It comes from fear, fear of not being able to do the things they want to do or feel like they they need to do on the other end. But even though the disobedience is subtle and and kind of practical, God responds the same way. What does he do? He does what he always does for Israel. He sends a prophet. He sends Haggai. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins, you shouldn't read paneled houses as fancy. They are not rich people. They are barely getting by, but they dwell in houses. And God is saying, you've taken care of your needs. Who provided those things? I provided those things. And I've asked you to do something, and you're not doing it. So we can see from this that all disobedience is addressed by God, not just the egregious things that we do. He's saying, you're not obeying me, and I desire you to do so. We're going to do throughout this passage is we're going to look at the Israelites and we're going to pivot back to ourselves. So let's pivot back to ourselves this morning. And let's look at, just for a moment, our disobedience. I think, well, I know that my disobedience, and I think that a lot of our disobedience looks a lot, Christian, like the Israelites' disobedience here in this passage. I think our disobedience is subtle and very often practical. I think it's subtle and practical. When we hear God ask us to do something, what do we start doing? We start playing the what if game. What if? Well, what if I don't have the resources to do that, God? Well, what if I lose that relationship, God? Well, what if I, I lose, it costs me my reputation, God? What if I lose this promotion? What if the current comfortable life that I have goes away? What if? What if? What if? And so oftentimes, Because we think we're trying to make a wise decision, a conservative decision, we choose not to do what God is clearly calling us to do for subtle and practical ways, reasons. Let's just have a moment of honesty together, okay? Let's just be honest for a moment about where we're at with obedience. Obedience is almost always uncomfortable. Can we agree on that? Obeying God is almost always uncomfortable uncomfortable. When's the last time God called you to do something? You're like, sweet. You know, there's always some kind of, oh my goodness, what's this going to cost me? And and there's a reason for this. In in our very center, we have this nougaty center, but it's not delicious. It's actually rancid and it's sin. We have a nougaty sin center. You can, you can quote me on that. It's corruption, and, bec- and when we obey, when we, ch- we try to obey God, when God calls us to do something, there's always at least one stray fleshly desire pulling at our souls. There's always at least one. And so we must understand that obedience rarely is easy, church. 
And at times, it feels impossible. How could I possibly move forward and do what God's calling me to do? So let's be honest about that. If, if we're honest about that, we can finally talk about it and deal with it in a way that's helpful. We should expect obedience to be difficult. Why? Because God is, is not giving commands to get results. That's not why God gives commands. To tell the Israelites, build a temple, it's actually not about a temple. It's not about the thing that he's asking us to do. When God gives us commands, it's about our hearts. Back last October, I, I, I preached a sermon on money. And what was, what was the thing? The thing was, God doesn't want your money. He wants you. In the same way, God doesn't want the thing he's asking you to do. He wants you in your heart. He wants the Israelites and their trust. And so God's commands are never really about the thing. They're always about our hearts. And God, you can see here in Haggai 1, he doesn't really want just their obedience. He wanted them. Look at Haggai 1, 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Here's his reasons, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. You see, this building, this temporary structure, was the place where God connected with his people in these times. This is the place where God was present and he had all the things set up so that the people could come and connect with him in the Holy of Holies. It's not about the building. God wasn't saying, look at me, I'm homeless. No, he's saying, I want your hearts, Israel. He's calling his people into obedience. Obedience in this case and in our case too, it's an opportunity for trust, it's an opportunity to deepen the relationship. So that's a look at theirs and our disobedience. Let's take a look also at their obedience. Their obedience in this book, this, this prophet, is actually different too because they actually obey. When's the last time we saw that from Israel, right? God calls them to do something, and what does Israel usually do? Like, nah, it's all good. So here we go. Verse 12. Uh, Zerubbabel. I'm going to skip all the names because I can do that. All right? All the people that are listed here obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And then what? The words and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. What changed between verse 2 and verse 12 in the circumstances of the Israelites? Did God rain gold from heaven? Did God send nomads who are expert construction workers who just happen to have camels full of lumber? I don't know. And you see this in verses 7 and 8. He says, go up to those hills and bring that wood. Those aren't new trees. That's part of the, the idea. They're like, okay, we've got some trees here, but if we cut those down, this isn't, God has not changed anything about their circumstances. God didn't suddenly give them a wealth of resources through which they could build this temple, and now they feel comfortable. No, they obeyed because of reverence to God. That's what it means when it says they feared the Lord. And I want us to hear this morning that obedience always starts with reverence. If we're waiting for our situation to change to a more comfortable situation in which we can obey, that's not where obedience comes from. Obedience comes from this odd, uh, 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 this, this inspire, inspiring view of who God is, an odd understanding of God and who He is. So Israel, if you, if you go back and look at verses 9-11, through 11, God has done this in a way with Israel. He reminds them, listen, you had a bad harvest. Remember how hard you worked? I am the God of the harvest, He reminds them. And all throughout the Old Testament, what does God do with His people? He reminds them, 
I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who brought you and conquered your enemies and brought you to the promised land. And in context here, what do they know for sure? They just came back from Babylon. God is the one who sends them out and brings them in. God is reminding them who He is. He's a God that patiently loves. And so as we pivot back to our obedience, we looked at our disobedience. Our obedience too, church, comes from our reverence of God. And so, listen, if we go back to all those questions that I had a few moments ago, like what if I can't do this? Well, what if I can't do that? What if this happens? What if this happens? I'm going to tell you right now, I have no practical answers that will answer those questions. Because what you're asking is, what are the consequences of my obedience? I don't have any answers for that. I can't tell you something that's going to make you suddenly feel great about doing what God's called you to do. Something that's going to change your circumstances. No, all I can do as your pastor is point you to who God is. That's all that I can do. That's what Scripture does. And thankfully, I don't have to do that on my own. We have verse 13. I love verse 13. Look at what God does. Then Haggai, so they have obeyed the Lord. They are obeying currently. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. Listen to what he says. I am with you, declares the Lord. Now, as these sinful people, this is my reaction. When I start thinking about, in my flesh, obeying God, I sometimes think of God as this hard-nosed taskmaster. Results, results, get it done. We need this, I need the temple, blah, 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 whatever. Listen, if God were a God of results, if God were that hard-nosed taskmaster, what would he have said here? It would have said, God spoke to the people of the Lord's message, or Haggai spoke to the people of the Lord's message, and it would have said, it's about time you got your button gear. I've been waiting. Let's get it done. Do that. Do this. Details. But no, what is God's response in their uncomfortable obedience? Their circumstances haven't changed. They have the same limited resources as they move forward with what God's clearly asked them to do, God comes to them gently, lovingly, and says, I'm with you. He declares it. I'm with you. You're not alone. This is who God is. This is what we've been learning about all summer. God is patient. God is gentle. God is loving to His people. And much like the comfort of the Israelites... God gives us comfort in our uncomfortable obedience as well. I've been reading Colossians with a few friends, and uh, this week uh, I was reading through it again, and I got to Colossians 3, and here's the deal. You cannot get around the, the fact that Colossians 3 has commands in it. Paul the Apostle in his apostolic authority is telling us as Christians to do something. And here's what he says. He says, put off all these things, and it's a list of all these sins Put off all these things. Stop doing it. And then and after that, he says, now I want you to put on all these other things. These are Christ-like qualities. He's telling us to do it. By the power of Christ, he's saying, you, this is what a Christian life looks like. Put off, put on. But here's the beautiful, beautiful thing. We see it here in Haggai, and we see it all through the Bible. There is never a command in Scripture that's not attached to a promise, church. A promise. There's never a command that's not attached to a promise. Listen to the promise from Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ 
rule in your heart. So what is this peace of Christ? How do I get it? Listen, the peace of Christ is not something you get. It's something that's given. The peace of Christ is given. And it's the same way he gives to the Israelites. God reveals who he is, and who he is should bring us peace. Think about it this way. What better comfort is there than God's eternal, unchanging love for his people? I can't think of one. I can't think of one. What better peace is there than God's promise to be with us? He promises that. I'm with you. I'm with you. Steve talked about this. God is with us in our struggle, in our trial, in our temptation. And God proves His love and secures His presence with us through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's where it comes from. It's where it comes from. And so, get real for a second, Ransom. In what world is there peace in obedience? You don't know what is going on in my heart or my life. You don't know what God is calling me to. Here's what I do know. I know that as we pursue obedience, we are going to fail. Amen? We're going to fail. And when we fail, here's what I know from Scripture. God is with us, and He loves us. God is with us, and He loves us. And here's what I also know. As we obey God, we're going to have to give up some of those things we previously cherished. Boy, that stinks. Where's the comfort in that? God is with us, and He loves us. There's something you're holding, we're all holding right now that we love dearly. And as we obey God, we've got to let it go. But here's comfort. God loves you and he's with you. As we all obey God, here's the Christian life. You ready for a good sales pitch? As we obey God, we're going to learn more and more and more how deep our weaknesses are. And that's embarrassing. That's hard to hear sometimes. But here's comfort. Here's the peace of Christ. God is with us, and He loves us, and He knows our weaknesses already. God's revealing to us, church, who He is. He's revealing to us who He is, and that should bring us peace. Now, God, in revealing who He is, this is also the process through which He stirs us up to action. Look at verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the Spirit. So this verb here means to rouse them to move, to cause them to act. So notice who's doing the moving. God didn't like put on a display and then the Israelites are finding their own motivation. God Himself is stirring their hearts. And then it says at the end, and they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. God reveals His love to the Israelites. He reveals His character. He reveals His desires and His power. And and He uses this wonderful display of who He is to to churn up their spirits, to cause them to move. Guess what? There's good news. They finished the building. They finished it. God caused them and motivated them to move forward in obedience, even though it was uncomfortable. God gave, He was with them, and He gave them the gift of obedience. So let's recap what's happened here. The Israelites are returned. God did this tremendous work. He did what he said he would do, as he always does. He brings them back from Babylon, and he says, rebuild my temple. And they do the thing, and they're like, oh my goodness, I'm not sure we can do that. I'm sure we can afford that. And so they disobey. And then God, what, brings the word, and he says, I am the God of the universe. Do this thing because I want to be with you in this place. 
and they obey. And then God, again, gently comforts them, reminds them who He is, and they are, in this ongoing way, stirred up to obedience. It's a beautiful thing, what God has done here in Haggai. And and God does the same thing with His love for us. God's love is what stirs us up to ongoing obedience. The most... Uh, the, the place where I think this is most clearly communicated is from 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 50. You can write this down. I'm going to read it to you. This is again Paul. Some of you may recognize this scripture. For the love of Christ controls us, he says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live, listen to this, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, he died and was raised. What's he describing in that last phrase? Obedience. Obedience is not living for ourselves, but living for God. That's what it is. And what is it that God uses to stir us up? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus, God in the flesh, coming to earth, suffering His whole life, living that perfect life we were supposed to, dying on the cross in the place where we were supposed to die, and then victoriously coming back to life. God uses this ultimate expression of His love to stir our hearts towards obedience. It's our motivation, church. It's not about our circumstances. It's about Jesus Christ and His salvation. God's irrepressible, redeeming, sacrificial, patient, victorious love is what motivates us, what pushes us. It's what actually changes us. What I love about this is, uh, so I think it might be the King James, the love of Christ compels us, like people make that into a joke, but I like that they use the word controls here because this word means to be arrested by, to be locked up by. And I love this because, guess what? The love of Christ is not a tool that we use. It's something that captures us factually. We cannot escape the love of Christ. We cannot outsin the love of Christ. It controls us. It's held us captive. And so in reality, what does God do? God's love that He expresses in Christ is the thing He uses to stir us up to become more like Christ. God uses the love that He expresses for us in Christ to make us more like Christ. Which is the final connection that we have with Haggai this morning. There's this meaning here that is so relevant, so immediate. I think it gets lost under a pile of funny names, right? Um, But here we have this character, Zerubbabel, which I think it integrates. Is that your roommate's name from college? I think it's... Good old Zerubbabel. Um, uh, Ashton and Lauren Zerubbabel, great name. I just want to throw that out there for your name list, okay? Zerubbabel. Here's, there's some irony here. Zerubbabel means child of Babylon. Child of Babylon. But, in reality, who is this character? He's a son of David. He's the continuation of the line of David. This is important. I'm going to read you a passage from Matthew 1. I want you to see if you recognize some of these names. This is the genealogy of Jesus that I'm going to read from. And after the the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, there we go, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. 
So at face value in Haggai, what is God doing? He's commanding his people to build this temporary building. It's gone. It got destroyed. The temple's gone. But remember, it wasn't about the building. It wasn't about the building. And so at the face value, God had his people doing this temporary work. He called them into it. But what is he actually doing in Haggai church? He's working mine and your salvation. Haggai's about Jesus. Haggai's about what Jesus came to do for you and me. This is all part of God's plan that down the road, the Israelites were like, you know what's going to happen. Jesus is going to come, and he's going to save all these people in Columbia, South Carolina. They, they, they had, that wasn't even on their mind. They, God just said, build the temple. Build the temple. I don't know if we can. I'm with you. Do it. And so what did God do? Even back then, he was calling his people to be a part of his work in the world that would save his people. Isn't that incredible? Haggai is about Jesus. So this morning, if Haggai's about obedience, then we better have a couple things we need to obey. So if, if we're going to pivot back to ourselves, what's God calling us to do this morning from Haggai? God's calling us to some obedience this morning. The first thing, I've got two. I've got 20, just kidding, just two, just two things. There's two things we're being called to obey this morning. The first thing, to know God's love, to believe it, to believe that it's true and submit yourself to it. That's the first thing. All true obedience starts not with our love of him, but his love of us. All true obedience starts with God's love of us. That's the first thing. God is saying, believe that I love you and learn about my love for you and then submit to it. So you could summarize that First one is learn. Learn. Learn about God's love. Believe in God's love. And here's the second thing. Just like the ancient Israelites, God's calling us to the same thing. Not to build a building, right? Not to build a building. God's calling us into his work. And what is his work? To save his people. To save his people. That's the work that the Israelites were doing, and God is still not done with his work, and he's calling us miraculously into that work with him. Listen, church, we have brothers and sisters who live in the world that don't even know there are brothers and sisters. They're longing for something in their life, and they're longing to meet Jesus, and they're longing to hear about his love. They've never heard it. And God... In, in his infinite wisdom, has called us, these nougaty, gross people, right? These sinners to be a part of that work. It's incredible. So the second thing we're called to do is share, to, sh to learn about God's love and then share that love with others. And I understand, I've already said it, obedience is uncomfortable. We're all probably thinking about some kind of situation where we may be called to share God's love with somebody and it, we're nervous about it. We're nervous. It's uncomfortable. Or maybe this morning, you're not a Christian. You, you don't know Jesus. You don't know what Jesus is for in your life. 
and you're feeling this stirring, you're feeling this thing like, man, I've never really heard about this God who loves us all the way to redemption, that we can't outpace His love for us. Man, I want that, but maybe, and and here's what generally happens, the what-ifs kick in. Well, what if I give my life over to this thing? What am I going to lose? What if I can't? What if I this? What if I that? Listen, the, the same message goes to both camps, whether you're nervous and afraid and uncomfortable with what God's calling you to do. It's, listen, church, it's uncomfortable to let God love you the way He loves us. It's uncomfortable. It can be a little bit embarrassing how much He lavishes on us. Or if there's what-ifs in our heart, here's the message from Haggai. To God's people, here's what God says to them and over them. I am with you, declares the Lord. In church, God gave us the Lord's Supper as this visible reminder that He's with us. He's with us in our trials. He's with us in our temptations. He's with us in our tragedies. He's with us as we do our best to uncomfortably obey. He's with us when we fail. He's with us when we lose what we think we need and what we love in this world. He's with us when we find out that we're not as good as we thought we were. He's with us. And that's what this is about. We eat a little piece of bread, we drink a little cup of juice or wine, and it's not just a snack, it's not a snack at all. What is it? It's Jesus physically with us in the Spirit, reminding us that I am with you, declares the Lord. And so this morning, who should come forward and what does it mean to come forward? Here's what I'd like to say. Coming forward and taking a piece of bread and taking one of the cups is a testimony. It's a twofold testimony. Okay, there's two things that you are saying when you come forward. First, you're saying, I- I'm a sinner. <laughs> That's an embarrassing thing. It's not something to be proud of. The things we do in our hearts, the things we think in our minds, the things we say to other people, the things we do are embarrassing. They're embarrassing. So when we come forward, it's not like a badge of courage. Everybody look at me. It's, it's hard to do. It should be hard to do. But it's not a walk of shame, okay? It's not what it is this morning. It's not that. We're not coming forward in shame. We're coming forward in victory. Why? Because it's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. And that's the second testimony. Although I'm a sinner, and although I've failed in multiple ways, I believe that Jesus Christ and His love overcomes and forgives all of that. That's what it is. So this morning, as you come and you get the bread and you get the juice of the wine, whichever you choose, that's what it is. You're saying something about yourself, but all the more you're saying something about Jesus Christ and who He is. So let's take a moment. Let's quiet our hearts. Let's focus on that. And let's make sure that we are ready to come forward. If you find after this time that, you know what, either I don't want to say that I need Jesus Christ. I don't want to say that I'm a sinner or I don't even believe in Jesus Christ or I have this sin in my life I don't want to let go. Don't come forward. Don't give the testimony that you don't believe. Don't do it. Let's take a few moments, quiet our hearts, let's let's examine where we're at and then I'll call the elders forward and we'll eat the supper together. Father in heaven, Jesus the Son and and Holy Spirit, we pray in your name.
pray this morning that this would be a time of renewal. Stir up our hearts. Remind us who you are. Remind us of your love. Remind us of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. My body, our body should have been broken on that cross. Instead, you broke yourself for us. May that truth be incredible to us once again. May it stir up our hearts to a renewed obedience. Not begrudging, but certainly admitting that it's uncomfortable knowing that you're with us and that you love us. Give us courage to come forward this morning to eat, to declare that we are sinners, but we are sinners saved by a loving, gentle, present, victorious God. Give us courage after this to go and do the thing that you're calling us to do. Make it clear to us in your word what those things are. May we learn about your love. May we believe that it's true, no matter how unbelievable it is. May we submit ourselves to it. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us all opportunities to share that love with others. Save your people. Thank you for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Thank you for this beautiful, beautifully broken church family. Thank you that we are brothers and sisters here and that we have the ability to be honest with one another where we stand before Christ and to celebrate that together. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.